morning. All right, our scripture reading for this morning is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 2, verse 5. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find that on page 952. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 2, verse 5. Please stand with me for the reading of the word. This is the word of the Lord. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Morning, Bethel. So many of you may be uh, familiar with the name William Wilberforce. Uh, so he lived from 1759 to 1833. He was a British politician. Um, we can be glad that he was a politician. Um, when he became a Christian, he actually went and sought out John Newton's counsel. So John Newton is the you know, writer of Amazing Grace. He was a slave trader before that, became a Christian and, you know, despised all of that, left that behind um, and followed Jesus and became a pastor, actually. And so Wilberforce actually came to him when he became a Christian and was growing and he felt like, you know, if I'm really going to spend my life well, maybe I need to be a pastor. And thankfully, Newton said, no, you need to be a politician. You need to stay where you are and utilize... Um, your position there and be salt and light um, for the sake of 
the gospel and the abolition of the slave trade. That was one of his great the labors of his, of his life was abolishing the slave trade. So for decades, he was at work at this. Lots of disappointment, um, but he was a model of perseverance um, through suffering and setbacks and so forth, um, all for the good of others. So his biographer, Pollock, wrote of him, and I found um, these quotes from a biography by John Piper. Wilberforce jumped up whenever they knocked him down. His adversaries said of him, I I love this quote, this is actually what made me think to uh, bring Wilberforce to our attention here this morning. It is necessary to watch him as he is blessed with a very sufficient quantity of that enthusiastic spirit which so far from yielding that it grows more vigorous from blows. He was like the Rocky Marciano of, you know, Christianity. Love it. But not natural enthusiastic spirit. This was the spirit of God within him that enabled him to to live like this. So in 1792, this is after he'd been at it for a while, um, you know, trying to work to the abolition for the abolition of the slave trade, and obviously all of Britain was against him because it was so wedded with their economic health and success and so forth. Um, lots of vested interest, and so. He wrote in 1792, I daily become more sensible that my work must be affected by constant and regular exertions rather than by sudden and violent ones, like not sprint crash, but faithful hard work and steady perseverance. It wasn't until 1807, so 1792, he'd already been at it for a while, 15 years later, it wasn't until 1807 that Parliament finally voted to abolish the slave trade, and Wilberforce wrote um, in his uh, diary, I guess it was on his 41st birthday, and this is in 1800, so this is before Parliament voted. So lest you think that he had kind of this naturally buoyant, buoyant and tireless spirit, he wrote this, O oh Lord, purify my soul from all its stains. Warm my heart with the love of you. Animate my sluggish nature and fix my inconstancy and volatility that I may not be weary in well-doing. We could probably resonate with that prayer. So he knew a lot of suffering as well as he fought for all these things, physical suffering, poor eyesight, ulcerative colitis, lung trouble, a curvature of the spine that eventually got so bad his head just rested naturally on his chest apart from intentional effort to actually, you know, stand straight, he couldn't really stand straight, but to look up, um, face lots of slander and threats and so forth, suffering in his marriage, suffering as a father, wayward son. So Piper writes this, what was the key to Wilberforce's perseverance under these kinds of burdens and obstacles? He said one of the main keys was his self-forgetting joy in Christ. So the testimonies and evidence of this are many. Piper writes, a certain Miss Sullivan wrote to a friend about Wilberforce in about 1815. She wrote this, By the tones of his voice and expression of of his countenance, he showed that joy was the prevailing feature of his own mind. Joy springing from entireness of trust in the Savior's merits and from love to God and man. His joy was quite penetrating. 
And then in 1881, Dorothy Wordsworth wrote, though shattered in constitution, bodily, physically, and feeble, he is as lively and animated as in the days of his youth. So outwardly, he was wasting away. Inwardly, renewed day by day. So he gave a window to us into how he fought for joy. One of his notebooks, he records this prayer. Lord, you know that no strength, wisdom, or contrivance of human power can signify or relieve me. It is in your power alone to deliver me. I fly to you for comfort and support. Oh, Lord, let it come speedily. Give me full proof of your almighty power. I am in great troubles, insurmountable by me, but to you, slight and inconsiderable. Look upon me, O Lord, with compassion and mercy and restore me to rest, quietness, and comfort. Amen. So he also shared another key when he advised this. He said, let him then who would abound and grow in this Christian principle be much conversant with the great doctrines of the gospel. So where did his joy and his buoyancy come from? The gospel, the cross of Christ, and desperately clinging to his Savior and operating in his strength. In fact, he goes on to say, we must learn to repose our entire trust in Christ and to adopt the language of the apostle, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of Jesus Christ. So he's a living illustration of our passage this morning, which we're back in our series in 2 Corinthians, um, and we're going to be looking at chapter 4, verses 7 to 11 this morning. The series title is Cruciform Ministry. So um, we're all influenced by things and shaped by things. It's really easy to be conformed to this world, selfishness and pride and worldly values, we need the cross to shape us, Christ himself to shape us so that we live a cruciform life. And then 2 Corinthians is all about cruciform ministry. What does it look like to live for the good of others? And Paul is defending his ministry, so it's a picture of that cruciform ministry. And it's not just for professionals. That's actually why I chose Wilberforce, because he wasn't a pastor. So this applies to all of you, not just to people like me, how do you live this life? Well, Wilberforce illustrates it. Paul illustrates it. And even though we're not apostles, you're not pastors or missionaries or whatever, still his footsteps are the footsteps to follow in as we deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow Jesus, our Savior. So let's read um, 2 Corinthians 4. We'll read actually 1 to 10 just to catch a little context. I'm sorry, 1 to 12. And then... Um, We'll dive in and look at verses 7 to 11 this morning. Okay, so follow along. If, you're using, if you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you. You can turn to page 965 and find uh, this passage. So Paul writes, Therefore, having this ministry, ministry of the new covenant, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning, or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement, by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. 
In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. All right, so there's a pretty simple outline this morning. Um, you can, there's one in the bulletin if you want to follow along that way. The points will be up on the slides as well. So the first point, the treasure. What is this treasure that Paul talks about in verse 7? We have this treasure in jars of clay. Well, look back at verse 4. He talks about the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In verse 6, he says, God has given a treasure, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's the treasure. Just different ways of talking about the gospel. The gospel is the treasure. Jesus is the treasure. And he's the greatest treasure in the universe. So Matthew 13, 44, which is actually our theme verse for the missions conference that's coming up in April, entitled, Worth It? Is it worth it? Matthew 13, 44, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure. Same word Paul uses here. Kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy... He goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. The treasure in that field, in that, <coughs> that he finds, is so valuable that it is no sacrifice at all to go sell everything that he has to buy that field. In his joy, he goes and sells it all. So before our eyes were open, though, you see, the God of this world loves to keep us blinded to the treasure, to the glory of God, the worth of knowing Christ. Before our eyes were open, we used to think that following Jesus was loss or just completely a waste of time. It'd be like stealing my life, my joy. We were all enslaved in the domain of darkness, blind to our sin. We were all on our way to hell, on the broad road to destruction, I, we need to be reminded of where we were. Sometimes it's just kind of like easy to almost get over how gracious God has been to us. 
And no wonder we start to get cranky and complaining and lose our joy. Because <laughs> we realize, we, we forget the treasure that we have. So we were on the broad road to destruction. It's what we deserve. We didn't want God. We thought he wasn't worth our time. Again, blindness to the treasure. And then what did God do? If you're a Christian this morning, at some point, whether you can pinpoint a day or hour or if it was more gradual, but at some point, God just sent forth his light into that darkness, like a laser beam light into the dark cell of our sin. And all of a sudden, you saw your chains and I'm, I'm enslaved to this stuff to myself, to my sin. And then he showed us his glory and what a great Savior he is. And we realized that this that we thought was freedom was really slavery. And then by his grace, our chains fell off and we were rescued and redeemed and set free. So our guilt was pardoned. This great merciful judge, innocent, righteous, because Jesus took our place on the cross. He took the punishment. He took the penalty. Our dirt, our mess, our shame was cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Our emptiness was filled by the mighty love of our Savior. Do you remember that? Isn't that great? I mean, what a treasure we have. We went from spiritual bankruptcy to infinite spiritual wealth. Listen to 2 Corinthians 8, 9. We'll get to it eventually here. Same book. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, it's in heaven, everything, he owns everything. Yet for your sake, for our sake, he became poor. He took on flesh and blood, emptied himself of all these divine rights and prerogatives in order to save us. He became poor so that you and I, by his poverty, might become rich. That's awesome. What a treasure. We're not going to have to pay for our sins. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we're not going to have to pay for our sins. We're not going to get what we deserve. We're not going to hell anymore. When we die, we are not going to face the judge and be condemned to eternal debtor's prison. We're not going to face the just wrath of God. It would be just for him to do that. We're not hopeless anymore. We don't have to be afraid of death anymore. I mean, how about that? And not only that, not just that we've been saved from all this bad stuff. We're going to heaven when we die. And our Father, get this, He is the Creator, which means He's the owner of everything, which means, hey, if we're His kids, what kind of inheritance do we have? All things are ours right? Paul actually says this in 1 Corinthians 3. All things are yours. The world, life, death, the present, and the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. So our inheritance, like it says in 1 Peter, is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's kept in heaven for us. We're going to dwell with God, completely made new, fully renewed, resurrected bodies, new heavens, new earth, forever, fullness of joy forever. Hey, all right. How about that? That's the treasure. That's ours. If you don't have that treasure this morning, like you can receive it, just drop all the trinkets that you've been living for. That's called repentance. 
and cling to Jesus and receive the free gift of his grace and salvation and all of those things are yours when he is yours. Now, sadly, the Corinthians knew enough of this to be dangerous. They took this and twisted it a little bit. They opened their ears to some, basically the first century equivalents of health wealth preachers. Okay, They didn't have TVs back then, but these would be the televangelists of the first century. They were false apostles, and they came in. They're trying to gain a following. And the Corinthians were a little too impressed by appearances and impressiveness, and these guys had some padded resumes, like, whoo, they're boasting of their visions and their ecstatic experiences, spiritual experiences, the kind of sensational stuff that'll sell books even today. And they were undermining Paul's ministry and telling the Corinthians that this guy's a loser. Like, he suffers too much. If you're going to be a powerful, spirit-filled apostle, you shouldn't suffer like that. So they're undermining Paul's ministry. I mean, come on, if, you're, if you are a, a genuine ambassador and broker of treasure like this, I mean, can't you just hear them? If you're a child of the king, you've got to live like a king. You ought to live like a king. So Paul had to defend himself, not selfishly. He was defending himself because if they followed those false apostles, they followed them away from Christ and traded the treasure for a cheap imitation. So he's having to defend himself so that he says, whoa, 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 don't go down that road. Don't walk away from me because if you're not following me, you're not following Jesus because I'm following in the footsteps of the crucified Savior. So this is why he calls them to a cruciform life and explains how his ministry is a cruciform ministry. So Paul said, defend himself. He does so not by kind of outboasting them, like I'm just going to puff my chest out further, be more impressive. He actually does so by boasting in his weaknesses. So this is what brings us to verse 7, the jar, point number 2. So we see what the treasure is now. He talks about these jars of clay. What's that all about? So yes, Paul is an apostle and a minister of this surpassingly glorious new covenant. Chapter 3, the glory of the new covenant is so much greater than the glory of the old covenant under Moses. Yes, Paul's mediating the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But that only means that it's all about the treasure and nothing about the middleman. It's all about the message and not about the messenger. So he writes in verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay. So clay jars in the first century, extremely common. They're cheap. They're easily broken. And you know what? If you break a, a jar of clay, you just throw it out. You're not going to fix this thing. It's not worth it. It's just discarded. So on account of those characteristics, the clay jar actually became like a common metaphor for human weakness. You can even see it and referred that way in, in Psalm 31. So Paul uses this metaphor to describe himself and other ministers of the gospel. The gospel is the treasure of the universe, but he's just a jar of clay, a mere messenger. He's nothing. Christ is everything. That's what Paul is saying. I mean, do you remember how he speaks in Acts 20? 
This is so countercultural. It's beautiful. It's convicting. In Acts 20, 24, Paul wrote, or he said, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God, the treasure. He was all about the treasure. So look back at chapter 4, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. Talks about the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ. And then he says, for what we proclaim is not ourselves. This isn't about me. It's actually about Jesus. With ourselves, just as servants for Jesus' sake. We're clay pots. Christ is the treasure. He's the Lord. We're just servants. We proclaim him. So Paul isn't aiming to impress people. He's not trying to promote his brand. He's not trying to build his own kingdom. He's not trying to come across as this smooth, omnicompetent, unflappable apostle. He's not afraid to admit his weaknesses. His confidence and hope for seeing people's lives transformed is not in himself. He puts no confidence in himself. He's actually afraid for that to happen which is why in the passage that Tyler read, he resolved to know nothing. He said, I came to you in weakness and fear, much trembling. Would you go to that guy's seminar? No, really, who, who do we put up in front of people, the impressive, like they've got it all together? Oh, I, I came in weakness and fear and much trembling. Are you ashamed of me? He's not afraid to admit it. Because he doesn't want the attention, he doesn't want the the confidence, the reliance to to land on him. So, in fact, I I remember in college, I was on the golf team for a couple years. Um, You wouldn't know it if you played with me now. Um, Never play. But anyway, I remember at one point, you know how celebrity athletes, there's some wonderful examples of of, uh, Christian Witness, Carson Wentz is one of them, okay? But sometimes there can be this like dependence or reliance on celebrity to really get stuff done. That's, that's the stuff that Paul would be concerned about. So I remember my golf coach said, you know, this is back in the heyday of Tiger Woods. Like, I don't even know if you guys know who Tiger Woods was, but he was like the golfer back then, you know, in the 90s. He was just like amazing before he kind of took a nosedive. I mean, I think he's still playing, but and I remember him saying, Oh, if someone like that could become a Christian. What's underneath that? It's like, so he would be a more effective minister than no-name claypot, you and me? Why? What are we relying on? Remember what Tyler read I, when I came to you, brothers, did not become proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That's available to any clay pot. But here's the point. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So, Paul was not afraid to show how clay pot-ish he was. He wasn't afraid to acknowledge his fears. 
Flip ahead to 2 Corinthians 7, 5. Just a page. Do you see there? He says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fears within. He's not afraid to admit it. He actually wants them to know of his sufferings, not so they'll be impressed with him like, oh, wow, he's gone through so much, but so that they'll be impressed with how God sustained him and delivered him through it all. So to see his weakness is actually, actually to see and be pointed to God's strength. So he doesn't want anyone to think too highly of him. He wants everyone to think more highly of God. So back in chapter 3, we read, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God. Paul's weaknesses highlight the power of Christ. His insufficiency displays the sufficiency of God's grace, and that's the case for us as well. So he accepts, he's open, he's clear about his weaknesses. In fact, turn to chapter 12. This is such a powerful example of this. Chapter 12, verse 7. I mean, Paul, yeah, I mean, he was a powerful apostle. He, you know, was given all this revelation, caught up into the third heavens. And so, look at, look at what he boasts about. Not about that, but he boasts about this. So to keep me from being conceited. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul said, oh, okay. Well, then I'll boast in my weaknesses, gladly so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, because when I'm weak, then I'm strong, not in my strength, but in Christ's strength. His strength is put on display in me. So do you see those purpose statements? To keep me from being conceited, and so that the power of Christ would be on display, manifest in his life. So our sufferings and weaknesses are divinely intended. Okay. Purpose. That's the last point. So turn back to chapter 4, and we'll see this purpose in these verses. It's so clear, repeatedly stated. This is really the center of gravity of this passage, is the purpose statements. Verse 7 again. It's the first time we see it. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, purpose statement, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that, another purpose statement, the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, death is at work in us, but life in you. So, verse 7, just track with me here. Verse 7 states the truth. Verses 8 and 9 illustrate that truth. 
we are afflicted in every way, like a clay pot, but not crushed because of the powers at work in us. We are perplexed, clay pot weak, but not driven to despair. God's power sustains. You see, it's illustrated. And then verses 10 to 12, restate and unpack it and just make it really super clear. Okay, so verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay so that, literally it would be so that the surpassing power might be of God and not of us. In verse 8, we are reflected in every way, so all kinds of pressure, but not crushed because the power of God is sustaining us. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Now, if you were reading 2 Corinthians straight through, you might, and, and if you're paying attention, you might say, whoa, 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 Paul, time out. I remember using this despair word before. Perplexed but not driven to despair. You said you were driven to despair earlier. What are you doing? Speaking out of both sides of your mouth? So look back at 2 Corinthians 1.8. Do you remember this? We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Sounds like the power of God sustaining a clay pot. Sounds like the life of Jesus resurrecting people when they feel the sentence of death. So what he's saying is, like, are you speaking out of both sides of your mouth? No, here's the point. Paul's actually honest about the process. He hasn't always lived in this place of, of chapter 4, verse 8. Like, you know, I always feel this way, perplexed, but never driven to despair. No, he's saying, actually, I was. I've already admitted that. But the way to be able to say this is through that struggle and weakness. I was brought to the precipice. I was brought to the edge. I felt like I was at the end of my rope. But he rescued me. He sustained me. And so now, in hindsight, now I can see that, yes, perplexed, but never ultimately driven without rescue to despair. So the path to this place is through chapter 1. So Paul is boasting in weaknesses through thorns in the flesh. You know, he was pleading that they would be taken away. And no, God said, I actually intend to keep you weak and dependent so that the power of Christ is made perfect in your weakness. So he continues in verse 9, persecuted but not forsaken. You know where else that word forsaken is used? At the death of Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So why can Paul say this? Persecuted but not forsaken. Hated and rejected by people and yet not forsaken by God. How can he say that? Why can he say that? How can he have hope and be sustained through trials and suffering and rejection and all this stuff? Betrayal. 
How can we be knocked down but not out? By feeling the weight of the glory of the treasure that's ours. You and I, if we're in Christ, we will never be forsaken. Precisely because Jesus was forsaken for us in our place so that we would never be. So the reason this is true is because he was. So again, it's the treasure, it's the power of God, it's the life of Jesus that actually sustains us. Not our own strength. Struck down but not destroyed. I mean, this is beautiful, crazy, wonderful biblical logic. It's like Jesus saying, some of you, they will kill, but not a hair of your head will perish. What? This is what life is like between the times, between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. He inaugurated the new creation. You know, he's making people new. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. But still we live in this old fallen age that's broken and this world is broken and it's passing away and our bodies are wasting away. So we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We grieve, but not as those who have no hope. That is the biblical logic of verses 8 and 9. And then this cruciform life and cruciform ministry is summed up in these last three verses, 10 to, 11, or 10 to 12. Look at them there with me. So always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. We die daily, we suffer, we're weak, we're clay jars, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. If William Wilberforce was just kind of Superman, unlike the rest of us, we wouldn't be encouraged by his example because we would just think, well, I've, I'm weak. But the very fact that he was weak and he suffered and he's pleading with the Lord for strength, the very fact that he was able to have joy with all this physical pain and all the slander and threats that he went through manifests the life of Christ. The power of God is put on display in his life. And it's encouraging them because we struggle, we suffer, and we need to have hope that we could actually be used of God despite ourselves. So always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over by God to death for Jesus' sake. That's serious language, given over. Suffering and affliction is not accidental in the universe. There's divine intentionality. so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So, did you notice the parallels in here? I have a little slide to help you see the parallels. Can you see that? The purpose is really clear. It's repeated three different times. We have the treasure in jars of clay so that the surpassing power might be of God and not of us. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. That's our weakness. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. This is our suffering and so forth. Always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So three different ways of saying the same thing. So we 
are called, if we're following Jesus, we deny ourselves, take up our crosses daily. We carry in our bodies the death of Jesus. We are mere, weak, vulnerable clay pots. But that's divinely intended. Don't you kick against your weakness? Don't you wish you had it all together? Don't you wish you were competent? And Maybe we're supposed to actually embrace our weakness. What if this is divinely intended? So that the power of the resurrection is operative in our lives because our weakness just throws us onto Jesus for strength and help over and over and over. Oh, it would be so dangerous if we were strong. We'd think we could go in our own steam. What good would we be to anybody? So this is how the life of Jesus, the power of God, is manifested. If we aren't weak, we won't rely on his strength. If we are weak, we rely on his strength. We'll be living manifestations of the life and power of Jesus. Paul, again, this is really serious. He uses this language of given over. By God, there's divine intentionality to lead us into suffering. It's not just that we carry in our body the death of Jesus. We are being given over by God to death for Jesus' sake. He said the same thing back in 2.14. Remember, led in triumphal procession to death. Have you ever picked up on this in Romans 8? Flip just to see that this is not like a random theme hidden in the middle of 2 Corinthians. This is a very clear central biblical theme. So flip over to Romans 8. We love this passage. You know, it speaks of the love of Christ. Nothing can separate us from His love. Have you ever noticed? You might be, you might be tempted to actually skip over verse 36. So turn over there. Start in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Nope. Distress? No. Persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Ah, what's this quote thing? Let's just move on to verse 37. No, that quote is really important. It's quoting Psalm 44, and Paul quotes it for a reason. For your sake, O God, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But, verse 37, no, in all these things, even in being given over to suffering and ultimately even death, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels or rulers or things present or things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Samuel Rutherford has a little book called The Loveliness of Christ, and he says, Grace withers without adversity. And then he says, The devil is but God's master fencer to teach us to handle our weapons. The only way that we become more than conquerors is by threat of being conquered. Flip 
For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. So Rutherford also wrote, Christ's cross is such a burden as sails are to a ship or wings to a bird. <laughs> like if you see that the very purpose of the cross is to give you God's power and get you kind of like disillusioned with your power, like get you over yourself, like come on, do you really want that power that's really weakness? Don't you want my power, the life of Jesus operative in you, manifest in you? So the cross, come and die, is good news. Whoever desires to follow after me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's not full stop there. It goes on and says, forever wants to save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses life for my sake and the gospels will find it. You'll really live. Because my life will be operative in you. So Rutherford again says, lay all your loads and your weights by faith upon Christ. Ease yourself and let him bear all. He can, he does, he will bear you. So weakness and suffering and dependence for us is so that we can mount up with wings as eagles by his strength and run and not grow weary and walk and not faint. So suffering and affliction and weakness is not contrary to the gospel. The power of God is if something strange is happening to you, like, what did I do to deserve this? How many times do we say that? No, it's the backdrop, the black backdrop that highlights our need for the power of God and shows off the power of God, the life of Jesus it's the way that God ensures that it's his might, not ours, that does the heavy lifting of life change in our lives and through us in the lives of others. The one who does the work gets the glory. This life of Jesus in us, though, is not just for us. It is in us also for others. So look how he finishes in verse 12. So, death is at work in us, but life, Corinthians, is at work in you. Why would you walk away from me? I've laid down my life for you. I've suffered, not because I'm a weak, pathetic, loser apostle, but because I want to give you this life. Death has been at work in me, life in you. So, dying that others might live, that's the Christian life. Again, what empowers that? The death of Christ for us. It's, it's the fact that he was forsaken that enables us to know that we're never going to be forsaken. He died so we can, to secure our eternal life so we can lay down our lives to give life to others. So if we want to follow him, he bids us come and die, not just that we might live, but also that others might live. Remember the words of Jesus, John 12, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. But whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I think we know this, even though we oftentimes kind of stiff arm it, we push it away, we run from it, we want to avoid it. 
We know this. Suffering actually strengthens and makes a person stronger, more substantial. There's nothing more vacuous than a powerful person in our age who's completely out of touch with the reality of life in a fallen world. I mean, you could probably pick an actor or an actress as kind of the caricature kind of obvious thing. Example. Maybe they've got the Midas touch. They're secure and comfortable, and they kind of protect their lives from any suffering and also from the suffering and weakness of others and any just... What is it, like, those people aren't really alive. They're just like shells. But then also, they don't have anything to offer people who are suffering. Because they're, they're like, they're not substantial, they're empty. You know, they whine and complain over common colds and traffic. And <laughs> whatever else, I mean, I should probably have thought of some, I don't know, there's some recent hubbub over, you know, one actress's, like, tweets on a plane as if the world revolved around her, you know? The most substantial people are those who have suffered and sacrificed and overcome incredible odds, who have paid dearly for their convictions, who have spent themselves in a worthy cause, who've not insulated themselves from suffering. They've taken burdens and suffering of others onto themselves, made them their own, not because they're just so awesome and have this iron will, but because God's power's been at work in them, enabling them to do this. I mean, Johnny Erickson Tata is tough as nails. She's so strong because she's weak. And she's been so amazingly used because she's not been relying. I can't. I can only rely on this. So do you see how she was given over to that? Like, oh, that's That's hard. That's a severe mercy. But wow, in the strength of God, the life of Jesus operative in her, man, has life been at work in so many people. So what do you make of your weaknesses and suffering? And by the way, we're not talking about moral weakness here. It's not like Paul would boast of his porn habit or his vanity or his weakness for material comforts. That's not what we're talking about. But what do we make of our struggles and weaknesses and suffering? On a very practical level, just a couple quick, um, wow, I need to hustle. A couple quick things here. Think about personal transparency. Do you share your struggles and your needs with other Christians? Or do you ever secretly despise the people who go on and on about all their troubles and are needy and weak? Is it possible to overswing and kind of give way to this kind of spiritual stoic pride? I think this can happen with even mature saints who, who do give a lot and lead and bear burdens. They're not real quick to share their own. Now, this kind of transparency doesn't mean that we glorify, you know, incompetence or, you know, shoddy, messy life or whatever. Sometimes there can be like a glorification of mess or something like that. Like that's the best place to be. But the point is it's rejection of all the self-focus, even spiritual pride. So we die to all of that so that the life of Jesus fills us up. We embrace our weaknesses. We're willing to admit them just like Paul is throughout this book. 
Or maybe on the other side, maybe you are really quick to admit your weaknesses. <laughs> you feel like nothing but a big tangled ball of weaknesses. Do you ever feel like you're tapped out? Running on an empty? Like you got nothing? You ever grow weary of leading your community group? God, oh, just got nothing. You ever want to quit your area of ministry? Quit teaching your Sunday school class? Dread coming again? Oh, I don't want to go to the mission. I don't want to make that phone call. I don't want to take that phone call. <laughs> I don't want to make that visit. I don't want to open the door to this visitor because you just feel like you got nothing to give. How about coming to the end of your resources as a parent? Uh, yeah, like daily as a spouse, as a family member with some troubled person or situation in your family. Listen, once again, it's a divine setup. Are we going to embrace that? God wants to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we don't do ministry in our own strength, but so that we rely on the one who raises from the dead so that the life of Jesus is manifest in us, so that death is at work in us, but life is at work in others. So let's not push through pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. You know, just get through it in our own strength, get it over with, so that we can just, you know, sit down and watch our show for refreshment. Nothing wrong with watching do you see? Sometimes we just kind of like, I just need to get through this. And I get through it in my own strength. We can sometimes pull out instead of pushing through. We just refuse to die daily. We start to save our lives and our comfort. And we're just like very, you know, just, just a little bit. Just You've run on empty one too many times. And you know what? Other people aren't really doing anything. So why should I? No, no, no. It's a cruciform life, cruciform ministry. This is so that you can, you know, run and not grow weary and walk and not faint. God wants to give us his strength. So it's dangerous to think we have it all together, to pretend, to even desire that. Let it, let's embrace our weaknesses here, Bethel. Let's be real and honest with Jesus, admitting our weaknesses. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Let's die daily so that his life will be manifested in us, his power perfected in us, and we'll have resources to lay our lives down in love for others. Death at work in us, but life at work through us in others as we love them with the love that flows through us that comes to us from Jesus. So let's close by singing, Christ is mine forevermore, because that's where it all starts. The treasure, Christ is ours. And knowing that we have him, we have all we need. So Father, please help us. Help us to see how much we need your power. Help us to abide in Christ because apart from him we can do nothing. Show us your power. Help us not run from affliction and suffering and daily death. Help us embrace it so that we can see your life at work in us and life worked out through us in the lives of others as we mediate your grace and truth to them. 
We pray it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.